Welcome to Drinks at Work by Boothby with Sam Bygrape, that's me. My guest today is James France. James has been influential within the Australian drinks industry over the last decade. He's responsible for importing some of the best and most respected craft spirits brands through his company, Vanguard Luxury Brands. He also seems to have a knack for breaking small brands in the Australian market, the kind of brands that then go on to get picked up by the big players in the drinks world. Brands like Kettle One, St. Germain, Hudson Whiskey, and Four Pillars, among others. So in this chat, I asked James about what he thinks makes a good brand, what new brands need to succeed in today's marketplace, what the difficulties are in getting a business like Vanguard going, particularly in Australia, and a whole lot more. He's a super smart guy and he's arguably built the most respected craft spirits portfolio in the country. One that drinks giant Lion liked so much they bought him out. My chat with James France in a moment. But first, this episode is sponsored by Australian Cocktail Month. It's a great initiative to get people back into the bars taking place this May. One ticket will get you access to exclusive cocktail menus in 144 bars across 12 cities for the entire month of May. You can learn more about Australian Cocktail Month at australiancocktailmonth.com.au and follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Australian Cocktail Month. Now, my chat with James France. James France, thanks for joining me on Drinks at Work by Boothby. Welcome. Thanks very much, mate. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. I'd like to set the table to start with generally, and I mean, you've had quite a long career. How did you come to start Vanguard Luxury Brands, and what did the business look like in the early days? Why did you start the business to start with? Uh, well, I started business after working in uh, in spirits in the US for six years. So, well, before then, I started off as uh, my first job in liquor uh, was as senior brand manager on Kahlua, and at, at which stage it was um, it was selling 120,000 cases of Kahlua every year, uh, mixed with milk. Kahlua and milk was the big thing. One thing led to another, not through Kahlua actually, but through J and B Scotch. I wound up working in the States and spent three years with the J and B people. Uh, which is now the ASIO, obviously, and then moved over to Remy. And the reason the Remy job was important in the States was that they asked me to launch um, a new tequila they just picked up called Don Julio. So Never heard of it. I, it was amazing. <laughs> it was an incredible opportunity. And uh, so I went to Mexico several times, uh, got to know Don Julio and his family, and we launched the brand, did really well. Then, unfortunately, went to... Uh, what was Seagram's at that point. But anyway, I came back to Australia in 2000 and realised there's a lot of good spirits out there which we're just not seeing in Australia. Craft was not a term at all back then, but I started off by importing Herradura and El Hemador on my, you know, on my own with my own little company called Spirits Australia. So I started off with that. I was doing consulting to various people, then wound up working for McWilliams Wines who wanted to get into spirits. Yeah. So I took Herradura and El Hemador with me into there and then I added Kettle One and Hendrix, and suddenly we had a really amazing portfolio. It was incredible. Yeah. But sadly, as is the way of these things, the brands went different directions. You know, uh, the tequilas went to Brown Foreman. Uh, Diageo, of course, did the, the distribution deal with uh, the Nolette family for Kettle One, mm. and the writing was on the wall with Hendrix. So I said to my boss, there's a tequila out there that's looking for a new importer. It's called Patron. They're very big. I think we should pitch for that. And so he said, uh, look, sorry, we've got other priorities in the wine area. And with my just growing passion of spirits, I just said, okay, look, I think I'm going to leave and start up my own company and pitch for Patron. So, so I did. And they said it was the best pitch they've seen by a mile, but they didn't want to go with a startup company. Sure. So, so there I was uh, with a company called Vanguard Luxury Brands and uh, no brands, uh, nothing. 
So and what, really, what year was this? Was it? I was uh, late 2007. Right. So at that point, I contacted uh, Naren Young, who was uh, a fantastic source of uh, information and advice in the early days. And I said, mate, you know, what shall I go for? He what brands? And he put me onto Aviation Gin, which was two owners ago. And then I'd also seen Florida Kinder in the States, so I contacted them and, you know, gradually started to build up this portfolio. And uh, the one that kind of put me on the map in the early days was St. Germain. This was at a time when every bartender put St. Germain in every drink. <laughs> it was. It was. And it was, uh, it was great because... Having St. Germain in the portfolio really put Vanguard on the map. You know, it got us into the bigger wholesalers. It got us into the national retail chains and all that. So, and when I say us, it was just me. It was me for the first few years by myself. What was it about St. Germain that everyone wanted all of a sudden? Well, first and foremost, the packaging was just absolutely sensational. And then even though Australian consumers aren't familiar with the elderflower taste profile, unlike, say, Europeans, uh, once people tasted it, they realised what you could do. As you said, you can add it to any drink, yeah. you know, even a gin and tonic. Or whatever. It was just amazing. Yeah. And so people love that. But being a liqueur, liqueurs are much harder work than spirits because spirits, of course, people know how to drink them, but liqueurs, you have to tell people how to drink them. Right. So. Okay. So, so how did you get that one? Correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that was developed by a guy who was... Yeah, Rob Cooper. Yeah. So he did that and he he then followed up with uh, a couple of other brands, uh, Creme uh, Yvette and a couple of other ones since then. And as you know, sadly, he passed away several years ago. But mm. uh, basically, I, um, I I got that brand just by you know presenting my credentials to them and it didn't hurt that a couple of people put in a good word for me as well. Sure. So networking, which is something I'll touch on later on today, if there's an opportunity, you know, how important it is. Yeah, okay, so, so that, that, that's the early days, yeah. Yeah, early days. Sometimes I go two or three days without selling a bottle of anything. I was sitting there in my office with a hard copy of the Yellow Pages, thumbing through it, looking for bottle shops and sending them little minis of St. Germain or, or Florida Carnia rum in a padded envelope with a price list and mailing these things all over Australia. So. <laughs> and so it was just you. Um, where is Vanguard today then? Because it's been quite the journey. You did develop a reputation pretty quickly, I think, for having one of the best portfolios going around because all the brands in there tended to stack up, especially as far as bartenders are concerned, I think. Well, it's um, really a matter of having a clearly defined strategy. It's super important. It really is, you know. And I was thinking, well, what does Vanguard stand for? And you hear that sort of talk in marketing presentations, which are presented and then never looked at again, you know. Yeah. Um, But this sort of thing really made enormous sense. Have a strategy and stick to it. And I wrecked my brain and I had a business consultant or an advisor in the early days. I arrived at the thing, Vanguard is the best brands for the best bars. Right. Stay focused on that. And that's why bartenders like the portfolio because if a a brand crossed my radar and it wasn't one that that rang the bells for the bartenders, then I wouldn't add it to the portfolio. Right. Everything was driven by that particular focus, and it still is very much today. Although, of course, the the retail volume is is required to uh, to you know justify the brand, mm. uh, but it needs to start in that area, in my opinion. Was that uh, a different approach on how you go about building a portfolio than was like the prevailing mood at the time? Were bartenders being treated to that kind of level of respect? I guess at that time. Look, I think they were, but there just weren't as many of them around. You know, there was. Uh, Sydney cocktail scene really wasn't doing much uh, in those early days. Melbourne, of course, had been for several years. Mm. So Melbourne, you know, was the epicenter 
to go to all these little cocktail bars. There were much lower barriers of entry to open up a cocktail bar in Melbourne back then. Yeah. You know, you needed $500 on a couch is what people used to say. <laughs> <laughs> reminds me of Barron's in the cross. Um, yeah. <laughs> a very, very bad couch. <laughs> so early days, it was just you. How long before you started putting on staff and being able to grow the business? Yeah, yeah about three years. And I had a couple of people... Uh, who was still very big in the industry, who really helped me out in the early days. Uh, Mitch Bushell yep. uh, was was fantastic. Natalie Ng, who I'm very, very happy to be working with again now with, uh, with Lion and so on. Mm. But where Vanguard is now is somewhere I never would have imagined when I started the company. So we've got uh, uh, 43 people and, um, you know, growing, all the brands are growing. We've got about 30 brands now and... Um, our objective is not to add more brands, but to grow the ones that we have. Yep. We get new brand proposals every day. I've got about three in overnight from all over the world, and I feel terrible. A lot of these brands are really good, but we just can't take them on because it would be unfair to them and to our existing brands. For sure. And so that's I imagine that's changed a fair bit from the early days then, right? Did you have to do a lot of pitching to brands that you wanted to get on board, or would they? how long did it take before they were approaching you to be a part of the portfolio? Uh, that's... That actually happened probably, yeah, it took a few years before that happened. Um, so in the early days, I did have to pitch to brands. In more recent years, we've done a couple of pitches. And um, uh, at this point, you know, we, we just don't believe it's worth the energy because there are so many brands. There are not many importers out there, believe it or not, yeah. really, in the scheme of things. So it's, uh, yeah, really the focus is just building the brands that we have. But, you know, winning awards definitely helped us uh, in terms of our profile. We won the Ilia On-Premise Supplier of the, war, of the Year Award three out of the last six years that it was awarded. So yeah. those sorts of things really help for the credibility and brand owners recognize that. Yeah. And so, so Lion uh, bought into Vanguard Luxury Brands in 2017. They had a minority stake then, was that right? Uh, 2019. 2019, is- okay when they bought the minority stake and they bought the remainder of the company late last year okay. um, in October uh, 21. And um, so it was interesting in all the in all the conversations I had with them, you know, they said, look, we're, we're really going to take what you've got, which is a great thing, and, and turbocharge it. That's exactly what they did. Uh, but, you know, we're adding fantastic salespeople and uh, back office support and all those sorts of things. But they are very, very keen on Vanguard staying Vanguard. Um, right. They're... The Vanguard DNA. But I mean, everyone, everyone does say that when they buy a company like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone says that. Is it possible to keep it that way? Look, I think it is. And I think that's that's an important reason why um, I'm still with the business. You know, I, I don't have to be. I've chosen to be, and um, yeah. uh, which is a, a great way to go. And uh, they are serious about it. They really are. And it's always something that even with our conference that's coming up in a few weeks, you know, what are we going to do to make sure that it's still a Vanguard conference, you know, right. so there's all that sort of thing. What, 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 you know. what makes a Vanguard conference? Uh, bananas, for a start. Um, those, are, those are very important. Uh, okay. <laughs> the... Uh, yeah, the Vanguard, uh, the banana hip flasks, which we originally found through Jason Crawley. And yeah. um, uh, we've given those out to our staff and to the trade and people absolutely love them. And it's, uh, it's just one tiny example. But uh, really what people you know see with Vanguard and the appeal is, and I find this when I interview staff, uh, you know, prospective new staff to say, well, uh, 
You know, I say, what attracts you to Vanguard? And I always say the same two things, which is the brands and the people. Um, those are super important. We had to keep that going. Mm. What, what does Lion get out of the of buying you guys? What was what's the strategy for them to do that? It's a, Lion just saw an opportunity in, in the craft spirits market, you know, yeah. um, and and they said, look, this is this is something that we want to be part of. There's a lot of growth there. We want to promote Australian brands, which is why they also have a share of Four Pillars, yeah. and uh, and then other brands I'm sure will come down the track as well. So they just wanted to uh, to get into the premium spirits space, and rather than trying to create something themselves without the expertise or contacts, they decided to buy a company that already was a going concern. Uh, in terms, you've obviously had a lot of experience with some very good brands. It's part of what makes uh, Vanguard Vanguard. What is it that makes a good brand, though? Oh, gee, it's it's um it's very hard to clearly define. There's there's uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, Xbox factor or black box factor in there. Sure, you know? but uh, certainly uh, you need to have uh, a good brand owner that knows what they're talking about. You know, I'd be very reluctant to take on a brand that is from somebody who has a lot of money, but from outside the industry. Right. They need to know the industry and the nuances. Good packaging is incredibly important. And then as well as that, of course, the a premium, excellent quality liquid is the price of admission. If you haven't got that, don't even start. Yeah. <laughs> that's, so, that's the basic stuff, right? Because there's the quality these yeah. days is pretty good, I think, across the board. But then... So everyone does pretty good stuff. What's what's the thing that stands out? You know. Yeah, well, that's that's right. Uh, you you want uh, good uh, marketing support as well, um, preferably driven by the brand owner, uh, generating their own uh, highly regarded social media and buzz and all those sorts of things. Mm. That's really important, so that there, there is an awareness of the brand out there. You know, when you walk into a, uh, an account as a salesperson, they say, "Oh, gee, I'm glad you dropped in because I've heard about this brand. I want to see it." You know. Right. I imagine that would have changed a lot over the years from 2007, the importance of social media for a brand. Yeah, look, it definitely uh, has uh, has evolved to you know, a ridiculous level now. But even back then, uh, the networking side of things was really important. So, you know, visiting uh, places like Tales of the Cocktail, um, those sorts of things, and more recently the BCB, were a great way not only to network, but to find out what brands are out there and what's cool and what's creating a buzz. So um, I was really glad when... Marco Ferrone told me years ago that I should go to Tales of the Cocktail and I went there uh, in my second year and saw him making a bathtub full of Negronis, amongst other things. <laughs> How important are these kind of these sort of trade shows, but also, you know, like the more consumer shows that you see kicking around now, like the, the Juniper Losers and whatnot? Are they things that you guys really look at and really want to be involved in? Are they as important as they maybe were 10 years ago? I think the consumer shows are important, especially if you've got a new brand that you want to show off to people, and especially if that brand has really good packaging, those shows are terrific. But if you've got an existing brand, I guess, I don't know, it's it's a lot of work, it's a lot of expense to put on those shows and to do it well. Mm. And if it's an existing brand, I I think you could be better off doing other things, to be honest. Yeah. Like, where would you put the money instead? I'd, I'd put it into, uh, I hate the word activations, but for one of other words, uh, <laughs> yep. giving giving consumers and the trade great experiences around that brand, mm. whether it's uh, you know, distillery tours or, uh, or other customized events for them, uh, anything like that. Uh, I think just to give people more direct contact with the brand itself and the people that make it, if that's aware, wherever that's possible, is a really good way to go. Yeah, okay. What makes good spirits distribution work? I know that's a very big kind of question, 
what's the big thing about it? is logistics a huge thing is it the sales i guess sales because you want to put it in people's hands what are the components to it you yeah, well that's interesting you, you you mentioned distribution because that's very often overlooked it's the least glamorous side of everything yeah but i was just out uh with uh with cass hill the other day visiting a few accounts here in sydney and a couple of them said oh it's great that you guys uh You've got such reliable distribution because we've been ordering through a couple of different wholesalers and they've you know the order comes on a friday and then it's only then that you find out there's an out of stock yeah so there you are a friday afternoon out of stock and nobody told you yeah whereas you guys if you're out of stock you tell us at the time and there aren't breakages and there aren't missed delivery slots so distribution is incredibly important and i used to get frustrated when our distribution wasn't very good because I'd say, look, I've done everything else and we've all done it really, really well and then we're let down by something that's third party and we can't control it. It was very frustrating. Yeah. So distribution is important. The salespeople obviously are listening to, to the bartenders and not just coming in and shouting at them. That's really important as well. Yeah. And then uh, you, know, you keep your promises, those sorts of things. If you say, I'll be back next Thursday, make sure you are back next Thursday. Uh, all basic stuff, but it's very easily overlooked sometimes. A lot of that's very basic hospitality stuff too. It's just listening and being attentive and saying, doing the thing you're going to say you're going to do. When you were uh, looking for staff in a sales kind of role, because you do have the, that bartender focus, did you look for people from the trade to hire? Uh, how did you go about it? Yes, and we still do um, across the board. It just depends on the sort of role that we're trying to fill. But if it's an on-premise specialist, we will definitely look at the... Uh, at the trade uh, first and foremost, because um, that's where all the knowledge and the contacts are. What, what do you have to do for these guys who, uh, who come from the trade? Because they don't necessarily have a sales and marketing sort of mindset all the time. What, what, what is it that you want from them? And what is it that you sort of will then equip them with if they don't have it? Yeah, well, if they, if they don't, if they're lacking in certain areas, um, you know, we'll, we'll train them up either personally or we'll get uh, other, other trainers in to, to help them out. So, you know, a big example is our CRM system. You know, we've always, uh, we've always needed a system like that and we've, we've implemented a, a very good one over the last two or three years. But they won't know that, so you need to clue them up on that. And, and you need to hire someone that's already accountable and responsible and not just someone that's, that's out there doing shots all the time and having an awesome, fun time. Yeah. You need to uh, – and so that, that comes in the vetting process, really, you know. Yeah. So, so, you, so you, you do do the reference check, yeah? <laughs> Absolutely, we do. <laughs> how, how does the regulatory environment in Australia affect what you guys do? Because it is – Things like the, the the tax that we pay on alcohol here compared to other markets around the world. That's the number one thing that uh, really is uh, is just completely out of whack and very unfair. And uh, you know, if the government is serious about uh, using alcohol tax for uh, for health and safety reasons, uh, then there should absolutely be a volumetric tax. It's madness that uh, the tax on a glass of uh, of wine is uh, can be as little as twenty or thirty cents. Whereas on a spirit, it's a dollar. You yeah. know, it's it's crazy. So that needs to be equalised. Of course, that's very politically charged because you don't want to be targeting one industry over another. Yeah. Uh, but that's something that I think is grossly unfair. And the fact that it's indexed twice a year is just is just incredible. Yeah. Well, that was a political fix that I think Bob Hawke put in back in the day because it used to be on the government to up the taxes whenever they when there was inflation kicking on. 
but they were like, okay, we're just going to make it. It happens regularly twice a year. It's a it's another body that does it. Hey, it's not alcohol. Hey, we're just going to take the benefit from it. It was genius. <laughs> it was it was genius. And look, if they do that and with an indexed uh, excise rate, so be it. But that it should apply to anything with alcohol in it. And there's you know on the, on the very negative side of that, I won't mention it. But there's there's a uh, a high alcohol thing that's being um, that's aimed at very very young consumers that you can buy a large one point five liter bottle for about eight bucks. Got twelve standard drinks or maybe more in it. Um, and it's just, you know, that sort of thing. People are using that loophole to market liquor very irresponsibly. Yeah. Uh, when, I, when I ask uh, sales and well, usually sales reps guys who are going into venues, I ask them what the most difficult thing for them is when they step foot into like a new venue to go sell something. The, the thing that usually comes back to me is uh, it's always a pouring contract, right? And that's, I think it's a, is that a more uniquely Australian thing than in other markets? I think they're pretty prevalent in the UK um, yeah. as well. I think in the US, though, depending on the law of that individual state, it's probably less prevalent. But again, I'm not speaking with authority on either of those. Mm. Um, How, do but you, yeah, definitely. Do you find them to be, you know, like a net positive or a net, um, you know, negative? Because it can make it harder for smaller brands trying to break into bars and get some deals. But I can see how it works for the venues that take it up. Because if it didn't work for them, they wouldn't do it. But then it's not also great for competition at the same time. Yeah, look, it's for small brands, and I know this firsthand extremely well over many years. Uh, it is very disadvantageous, and um, and it limits consumer choice. Mm. Uh, that's an issue. So, if the pouring contract is with a company that has a really good portfolio that gives consumers what they're looking for, then I don't think it's a problem. But if a, a venue is tied into a contract with a company that has brands that don't really appeal to consumers, then ultimately the venue could be hurting itself because mm. consumers might go to other venues where they can find the brands they want. Yeah. I, like I remember probably about 10 years ago, we behind the bar, you started to get brand called a bit more, which was always more of a US thing. Here it was always like, I'll just get a Scotch and Dryer or get a vodka soda. Has that continued? Yeah, well, it's definitely growing. You know, it's a brand call in Australia. You know, we're seeing that with Four Pillars and have been seeing that for quite a long time across the board. Um, Ford Laser, Michter's, you know, those sorts of really, really great brands. People definitely call that. And I think it's great. I think it's really good because consumers are becoming more discerning and have done, especially over the last couple of years when uh, with all the, the, the premiumization driven largely by COVID and the home cocktail making and those yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I see it as an increasing trend that I, I, it won't go backwards. That brand calling, I think, is a really good thing. With them being more brands than ever, and as we were saying, the quality higher than ever, it's got to be tougher than ever to launch something new. Um, what do you yeah, think that brands need to do to succeed? Well, I think, and this is really easy for me to say, um, cogs need to come down. You know, the thing is that craft is, is good and it's premium, but some of the uh, some of the craft spirits are still way too costly to be able to be used, uh, except by absolute diehard die fans. So mm. the cogs need to come down, but still maintain the quality and everything else so you can c compete realistically mm. and gain volume. A great example that we've got is uh, Morris Whiskey, the Australian whiskey. Yeah. Um, that's terrific. It just ticks every box in terms of its quality and its packaging and the marketing behind it. And those guys realize that they need to be priced at retail less than $100 for a 700 mil for a quality whiskey. Yeah. Because if they're coming in at 150 or 200 or 250, the volume's going to be tiny. So they have approached that with a very market driven approach. Mm. I did see that come out and I was 
initially skeptical because I'm like, oh, okay, another whiskey player. It's like, <laughs> and then I saw the price point. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting, but is it then going to be terrible? And it was actually very delicious whiskey. You know, <laughs> like it was a pleasant surprise. You know, <laughs> well, you, you're, you're used to it to being like $150 plus a bottle, $200 something, and it's that's just not sustainable for most people to be able to purchase. No, it's it's really not. That, that's why people need to take the wrong viewpoint there uh, as a distiller is to make smaller margin in the short term uh, in in anticipation of longer term volume. But uh, yeah, but is that just a, is that a function of is it the regulatory environment driving that cost up? Well, it certainly is to the degree of twenty five or twenty six dollars a bottle right there. So that that obviously makes a huge difference, and then GST on top of that at the consumer end. Mm. But otherwise, I think just generally a lot of the costs are, are uh, it's a vicious circle because you're dealing with small purchase quantities of bottles, for example, and raw materials. So it's a tough one. But if you can get the right backing and take a long term view to pricing it as where the market would expect it rather than a cost-plus-based cost plus system, right. um, then it's definitely a better way to go. Uh, you were saying before that it's surprising there's not actually that many liquor importers. Uh, do you think it's something that would be an attractive business for people to get into now if they had a passion for it? I think so. If they have passion and experience and contacts, uh, yes. Mm. Um, because you you need, for example, if you're starting up as uh, as I was, you need contacts in the wholesalers. Because if you're selling in Melbourne, for example, you know you need to go through Paramount and those guys do a fantastic job there. But if you're not in Paramount, then you're going to have to be selling, packaging up single bottles and sending them off to bars, which is obviously unviable. So right. uh, you need that sort of experience and contacts. Uh, it's really important. You you. You'd be crazy to start up an importing business if you're doing it from outside the industry. What were the personal skills that you think you had when you did start Vanguard and then to also grow Vanguard? What were the personal skills or you know attributes that you had that helped you get through it and you know to survive in the early days and get to where you are now? I think the marketing background really helped a lot so that you understand, you know, um, all the aspects of marketing, the four P's, you know, and, and uh, I think that's that's very, very important. What are the four um, P's? Because I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, it's it's sort of the basics of marketing, which is uh, uh, product, price, uh, promotion, and place slash distribution. Okay. And then other people put fifth and sixth ones on, like packaging and PR or whatever. But yeah. um, You can those, leave, leave the PR out of it if you ask me. Yeah. <laughs> And anyway, that's part of promotion in the marketing mix anyway. Yeah. So you, you need to have an understanding and really address all of those sorts of things. So the marketing background, I think, really, really did help a lot. Mm. And then as well as that, just being able to to network and network in a good way, you know, not go to a trade show and make a fool of yourself. Yeah, um, yeah. So and that's why it's so important to go not only to, to tales and cocktail and things like that, but to, to go to industry events all the time. Mm. It's, you know, it's really, really important because you get to see all the customers there and, uh, and, and socialize with them and so on, you know, the bartenders and the bar owners and things. So the, the ability to, to network without being forceful or in your face. Yeah. Yeah. But then I guess, too, it's also having the discipline to follow up. Oh, yeah, Definitely. Definitely, and uh, treat treat everybody re- with respect um, as you would like to be treated yourself, and that's my overarching philosophy of vanguard and life, anyway. Yeah. So um, sometimes I stuff up, but generally, you know, I try and <laughs> stick to it. Uh, so I, 
I think in this business, I think everyone's stuffed up more than a few times. Uh, <laughs> comes with the territory. Uh, well, but what sort of personal characteristics about yourself? And this is, I imagine you don't really like talking about yourself too much. <laughs> but like, is it like to, to get up each day and go back to it? Like you were saying, when you're not selling bottles for a few days in the early days, is it a belief thing? Is it a, well, it's this or nothing thing? How did, how did you get through that yeah well I, I think a big motivating factor was I, I didn't want to have to sell my house if the company failed <laughs> yeah that'll get you out of bed won't it <laughs> yeah it will it definitely did um my wife was very understanding and supportive all throughout that because it was a big call mm. you know so can we mortgage the house to uh, to fund this business idea that I have so um that was that was the overarching driving thing but ultimately I just wanted to succeed because I saw these great brands that deserve to do well people that did want to buy them and uh, and I just love walking into venues uh, even now and people say oh, you're Vanguard great come on in yeah you know um, because you've got a great portfolio and uh, and good people and so on. So the things that kept me going were just just the enjoyment of uh, of providing our bartender friends and the retail trade with uh, all sorts of uh, brands that they they were interested in. Mm. So that was that was a big motivating factor and still is. Yeah, I, like when I think about Vanguard, I always find it you were bringing out Saint Germain, and then that obviously got bought by Bacardi. Uh, globally, you know, smaller brands like the Tuffletown Spirit stuff, the Hudson Whiskey and all that, them getting picked up by William Grant and Sons, you know, it's, you've obviously got an eye for what makes a good brand. Is it a thing where it's like you just know it when you see it kind of thing? Or is it you're taking in information from a lot of people around you? Usually you just know it when you see it. So you'll, you'll see it online or you'll get a presentation from a brand and you read it and you say, this person knows what they're talking about. Right. They instead of just these generic things showing this is our target audience and you show good looking twenty five year olds on a beach, you know. <laughs> sure. It's everyone's target audience, whatever. <laughs> That's right, yeah. You may as well just say anyone with a mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, not anyone. They're going to be a certain age. Uh, <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Absolutely. Adults with a mouth. Yeah. So, so uh, there are those sorts of things. And then sometimes there are brands that, um, that you see and you think, oh, I'm not exactly sure personally. But then, again, you just do secondary research, if you like. You know, you speak to people. What do you think of this? And um, you go to trade shows and you might see it and you see the people that are behind it or whatever. And then you, you get a feel. There are some brands that, uh, that I won't mention, but I sort of was a bit unsure of. But then based on the external buzz and reaction, I realized, okay, actually, this is a brand worth pursuing. And we've got some of those wonderful brands uh, even with us today. Yeah, right. How's uh, the day-to-day change for you now that Lion's got the whole thing? Where are you at? What's next for James France? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to uh, stick around here, which is great. I am only part-time, which is I should be using better or making better use of my time off than I am. Nah. <laughs> but, nah. Nah. The world's right. going to shit anyway, James. You know, <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> true. true. Yes, yeah, so I'm three days a week. Um, uh, the, the great thing is that all the day-to-day stuff has been taken off my plate. That's a huge relief like customers overdue in paying and payroll tax and can I make payroll this month? You know, all of those questions are completely gone and they're handled by far more capable people than myself. So, 
So that's good. In my new role as business development director, I'm uh, working on um, innovation and and also keeping those um, those relationships going with our uh, previous brand owners because that's really important to everybody across the board. So the future is, I know Lion uh, wants to develop more local brands, whether that's building them from the ground up or acquiring others will unfold as the years go on. But they've got a a serious and committed focus to all of that. So it's going to be good good fun. Wonderful. Okay, well, James, thank you for joining me on uh, Drinks at Work. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Excellent. Thanks very much, Sam. Good idea. Thanks again to James France, and thank you to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please, if you've got any feedback or if there's someone you'd like to hear from on the podcast, my email is sam at boothby.com.au and I'd love to hear from you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with a friend. I'd love it if you gave it a rating on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. We're also on Amazon Music, Android and Google. Until next week, this has been Drinks at Work by Boothby.